I think the first and most important question is what can we do here in Palo Alto in a solidly blue state to help bring about real change? And then there's a clarifying question, but we'll start with that one. Yeah. Um, can you hear me? This is on, right? Great. Um, I, think that, I, th I think there's actually qu uh, quite a bit that can be done. I mean, obviously, there's, there's more wealth in these couple counties. So it's, of course, not completely dispersed, but uh, <laughs> than any other few counties in the, in the country. Um, and so I, I think when I was doing community organizing, we always used to say there's two, two types of power. There's organized people and there's organized money. And I do think that you can organize your resources and your people towards the, uh, public ends. Just because this is a blue state doesn't mean it's always been friendly to immigrants. I mean, most folks um, who, who I, hopefully I'm not going to judge ages in the room, remember Prop 187 and, you know, the more recent uh, shift in California um, that happened politically. It was only a few years ago that um, uh, all Californians, including undocumented Californians, were able to get Medi-Cal and access to Medicare, um, medical care. So um, I, I would say stay awake because that's not necessary. It, it can be fragile. Um, the other thing that I'll mention is um, one-third of our work at Define American is in the entertainment media and pop culture space. So we've now consulted just in the last couple of years on over 60 different television shows, reaching 39 million-plus people. And, and a lot of folks don't realize 80% now, thanks to streaming services, 80% of the entire entertainment media that's consumed globally is produced in California. The narratives that you all choose to support, the stories you choose to tell or not tell, and how you tell them impact perception across the globe. And they impact perception in towns like mine in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, we all watch the shows that you create right here and have access to. And so it's why when Grey's Anatomy, for example, we had been talking to them for a while because they're one of the only shows that reaches uh, purple America still. Yeah, I don't know if you're aware, entertainment media is even more polarized than, than political. There was a study done right after the election by Time that said if you wanted to know what was a stronger correlation, who people voted for in the last election their political party, or, or if they voted for George W. Bush, or if they were viewers of Duck Dynasty versus Orange is the New Black, the TV show was more of a determinant. So I say all that to say we uh, select shows and get invited many times in like Grey's Anatomy because they reach millions of people. And we said, well, you know, the current narrative is that undocumented people stereotypically are uh, Latinx, uh, you know, uh, from violent backgrounds or something. Um, why don't we have the first undocumented character uh, who's a doctor? And so we brought in a bunch of undocumented doctors to that writer's room, and they just shared their stories. They were peppered for two hours with questions about their stories. And then months later, of course, the first undocumented doctor 
became uh, one of the members on you know the cast of Grey's Anatomy. And so we've done that with uh, comedy and other things. But I say all that to say, your voice is your vote also. What you choose to watch and what you choose not to watch. Uh, and so that is in influential. I mean, you're in a state that has about roughly 3 million undocumented folks just in California, undocumented Californians, okay? There are like 3.5 million people total in the state of Kentucky. How you treat one another matters. It, it, it doesn't matter to, to me, uh, frankly, what the president says or politicians say about uh, someone being uh, what he called my uh, cousins and my family on the Mexican side, rapists. Uh, it matters more how I treat those people, whether I welcome them into the, to my home. I'm not saying what the president doesn't say matters. I'm saying what matters is we don't have to always act in the way that they would hope that we would act. And so um, with as the state with more immigrants, not just undocumented, than any other place in the country, I think you have an opportunity to show us the way. When they're saying crime will go up with more migration, you can show us the way. When they're saying that communities that are diverse can't ever have a hope of being connected and bonded to one another and being successful, you can show them the way. You can say, well, we have great diversity in our communities and we're thriving together. Um, and so that's what I would say. And, uh, you know, maybe when Mitch McConnell's up for re-election this next year, fly to Kentucky and do some door knocking. <laughs> yeah. Uh, two people asked, uh, what is the implications of the Supreme Court's hearing this week on DACA? What happens um, in either direction of what the Supreme Court decides? And maybe explain for some folks why Tuesday and the Supreme Court uh, is so important to your work. Yeah, I, I first, in answering that question, want to acknowledge that uh, my friends that were in the Obama administration don't like it when I say this. Uh, we first need to uh, recognize that the system that was created um, to house families and separate them um, more generally and the deportation systems were created under previous administrations. Uh, and acknowledge that over 3 million people more still so far uh, were deported under the Obama administration more than any administration in U.S. history. So I do want to acknowledge that just to, not to have a false equivalency, but to say that in light of that, under a lot of pressure, um, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, DACA, came about because of heroes like Gabby Pacheco, who's on our board, who marched in the early days uh, from Miami to um, Washington, D.C. to share their story and to demand some sort of relief. And at that time, the Obama administration felt very strongly that if they could just show the other side of the aisle that they were tough on immigrants, they could pass some pretty major legislation. And after three different Congresses, that became, you know, uh, obvious that that was not going to happen. And so their only option was administrative relief. And so they created DACA, a new program where 
you have to pay $500 in order to get the government not to, to agree not to deport you for two years. That's DACA. People often miss the deferred action. The, word a- the action in deferred is deportation. So DACA was never meant to be a, con- a continual thing, but in the absence of any action, DACA became a promise that our country made to mostly young people who were brought here as children and could meet certain criteria. And so um, 700,000 kids right now uh, are still under DACA, just under 700,000. They have uh, work permits at varying degrees that allow them to stay in the country for every couple years. They have to reapply. Um, President Trump, in his first few months in office, got rid of it. Some of our partners immediately sued. That's where it's been. So the Supreme Court, hearing that case, is a final decision on whether or not the program will continue. If the program discontinues, we will have 700,000 young people that the government has all of their information. They have their fingerprint in more recent iterations, blood tests, um, address. They know everything about, you know, uh, who will lose the ability to work. In some cases, lose the ability to go to school and in many cases uh, would face deportation. Um, And the government would have the information that they need to quicken that deportation. So it is a quite serious thing and it's also uh, unfortunate that we're not incredibly confident that that uh, the Supreme Court is going to rule in favor of uh, the young people with DACA. Um, and so um, when Jesus talked about housing people, when I talk about being community, being beloved community for people, uh, I think communities are going to have to make decisions. Uh, Tim Cook said he has 400 DACA folks at Microsoft. Apple. Ooh, I'm not from the Bay, and I'm tired. That's a huge mistake. Don't, don't offend huge this mistake. crowd on that. <laughs> uh, well, and he said, no matter what happens, I'm going to stick with these kids. And frankly, they're not kids anymore. But I'm going to stick with them. Well, uh, are you going to hire 400 contractors then? Um, if we have students in school... Are those schools going to stick with the students? If they have scholarships, and now you can't use government money to give them scholarship, are you going to stick with them? If they get deported, are these schools going to continue to allow the students some pathway to finish their education? I think that's the question that, that we all face. Is What are we going to do in response to what would be a crisis of our own creation and a breaking of America's promise to these uh, young people? I mean, from a legislative standpoint, once the, once the Supreme Court makes their decision, there's no other additional legislative pathway. So the only pathway that we're left with is the local and communal pathway. Is that a fair assessment? Or Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's fair. I mean, Congress any day could, could pass some sort of legislation. We're not confident that that is going to happen. Um, the country's very divided, um, about 25%, particularly of the... Uh, electorate on one side of the aisle, immigration is their number one and number two issue, and they're very agitated around what they view as a shift in American culture and identity. And so I don't, there aren't very many people who are hopeful about legislation. We we never know. 
But I do think local communities have to make those decisions. Are we going to have local taxpayer dollars being utilized to the, for the deportation of people who are residents in our own community? Uh, and then how do we treat uh, one another if and when that system comes into effect? Well, I guess that's my question that uh, at the federal level, you have right the Supreme Court and you got Congress, but at the local communal level, um, even cities and states still have the opportunity to pass their own legislation, uh, regardless of what the Supreme Court says and does? Uh, no, not on immigration, unfortunately, because um, immigration and even the Supreme Court on a number of rulings has uh, decided that it's a federal uh, issue. It's one of the unique subsets that's, that's federal, which is also why it's a civil violation. It's not a criminal violation when someone is here without documentation. The Supreme Court said, by the way, to be here without documentation is not a crime. Um, and so, uh, unfortunately, it does have to be federally decided. Now, how local resources are used is a different question. I mean, um, about half of all people who end up in deportation proceedings are there because they don't have access to identification. They get pulled over for a traffic violation or a checkpoint, um, and they end up in um, you know, immigration uh, detention which is why you're twice as likely to get detained if you're black mm -hmm. and you're undocumented because more black people are, are pulled over by the police. Yeah. Um, and so, um, yeah, I mean, there are some things local communities can do, but unfortunately this is a, a conversation we're going to have to have as an entire nation. Yeah. I thought this was an insightful qu uh, question. Um, Hi, Pastor Ryan. We know the problems, but what are we proposing should be done? Are we asking for open borders, which is one of those phrases that you hear frequently? Uh, are we asking for open borders to solve immigration issues? Or can we do much in the countries where people are coming from to support social and economic stability to allow people to stay? Um, open borders is one of these buzzwords that gets uh, thrown around very effectively as if there's a, some sort of dichotomy between open borders and closed borders, and we have to choose one or the other. Open borders would, is, is what we had when, when a number of my ancestors came. Uh, this is when Ellis Island was open and you could just show up and, and come. And in the earlier days than that, even more ancestors uh, stole land from my other ancestors because they just showed up and said, well, this is my land, right? That, that was truly open borders. Um, open borders is what we have for our iPhones, right? Uh, this iPhone has more rights than a lot of people in this room. Um, and, and so I, I just want to say that's a red herring. It's used often in these narratives. But uh, the, the reality is people move across continents every day. And so, um, you know, uh, I may get in a little bit of trouble, but I'm, I'm here to be honest. I, I, I am not one of those uh, purists, nor is, are most of the members of our organization that say no deportation should ever happen, right? We just had a Russian spy who served jail time and then like a couple weeks ago got deported back to Russia, right? And probably would have continued to spy if she was still here. I think it's a rare different case. Um, what, I, what I haven't understood is why we use it as a mechanism at all when it's completely ineffective and shown to be incredibly costly. Um, but uh, let me say that I think for most people of faith, 
the question isn't necessarily are we open borders or closed borders. It's what I suggested in, in, in my talk. Um, how do we create this global understanding of the kingdom of God and, and how are we going to treat one another? Um, do we actually believe that someone should be able to have a shot at becoming a, a citizen? And what does citizenship really mean? I mean, I'm a citizen because I was born in the United States. Uh, that's not a lot of work. My mom did all that work, you know. Uh, but I often feel in, when we have elections, when, we, when I was in the uh, Navy Chaplain Corps, we would go out recruiting, that we take our citizenship for granted. When there are folk who cross entire oceans, are separated from their family for months, years, just at a shot at that same citizenship. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't want to take it uh, for granted. I think there can be a clean, clean, orderly system that comes out that actually lines up with American values. And I think also, like, we're in a global migration moment right now. We will be for the rest of our lives. There's no wall. There's no single piece of legislation that solves that. We have to decide as a people, how are we going to be welcome to people that are moving from place to place for the rest of our lives? And then legislation that lines up with those values. And let me be really clear about this, too. Um, we, when we think about immigration, we often think about the laws. I would suggest that a law is, is simply a value at a given point in time among the people who have power. And the shift in values is what is going to create sustainable legislation around immigration. And so that's why I just call us to sort of a higher conversation than closed borders or, or open borders. So somebody, uh, this I actually think dovetails very nicely. Somebody asked, what does uh, Define American do? Um, besides media. And I'd like to add to that this quote that I told you that I wanted to share from Jose's book. Um, I never felt protected by the law. I didn't understand why the law was the way it was. To pass as an American, I always had to question the law, not just break it, not just circumvent it, but question it. I had to interrogate how laws are created, how legality must be seen through the prism of who is defining what is, what is legal for whom, I had to realize that throughout American history, legality has forever been a construct of power. So there's, there's kind of two questions in here. Um, one of them uh, has to do with what is that part of the reason or one of the main driving reasons why Define American has chosen the pathway that it has chosen in the work and the advocacy um, that you're doing? And then I guess the implied question is how are we as general everyday people then um, kind of following your lead to relate then based upon the narrative relationship that we should have, but then how should we relate to the law as well with that? Um, I mentioned Harvey Milk. Uh, Mid-1970s, learning from what was already happening in Europe, Harvey Milk and his group of organizers in San Francisco decide they're going to start a coming out campaign. 
And they said, we have to share our stories with the people that we know and love. We have to come out because we have to change the narrative. 20 years later, shows like Will and Grace uh, hit the television screen and people across America are introduced to uh, a gay monogamous um, couple, uh, LGBT relationships, functioning families that look just like theirs on the television screen. A couple years later, Ellen DeGeneres comes out. And we start to see this sea change in culture um, towards being open, at least, and more tolerant in communities like where I grew up to LGBTQ folk. By the time, um, you know, we reach this decade, the Supreme Court is ruling that same-sex couples can get married. And a guy like me, who grew up in Appalachia, in the Southern Baptist Church, is rushing to the courthouse because my friend Ben wants to be the first to marry his boyfriend. There was never a bill that passed federally that said they could get married. Culture had shifted. My home state, again, in Kentucky, two-thirds of our legislature is a Republican, very evangelical conservative. There's a supermajority in the House. We just uh, had a Republican governor who is also very anti-LGBT. But they didn't pass a single anti-LGBT piece of legislation. Not a single one, because they knew the culture had changed. What I'm suggesting is that with our work at Define American, with the stories that we tell, with the difficult conversations that we need to have in community, we're shifting our culture so it's more welcoming to newcomers and more inclusive. That's the type of change that we need to have. In that time in the 1970s, newspapers were calling LGBTQ folk, even the San Francisco Chronicle, horrific names. Today in the United States of America, newspapers call folks like Jesus and others that we've shown, Julie, illegal, anchor baby, results of chain migration, all of these hate group terms that are dehumanizing. Each of us can choose to use a language that is more reflective of humanization. Each of us can share our own stories about migration. Each of us can challenge our local media to not just ask immigrants what they care about immigration, but ask them what they care about their community. As if it was a like groundbreaking idea that they're full humans and actually may care about things other than immigration. And so I just think that's the sea change that, that we're trying to bring about. It's letters to the editor. It's uh, difficult conversations in, you know, at the Thanksgiving dinner. Um, it's creating welcoming community and creating continued spaces for like, for conversations like these. Okay, so somebody asked exactly that. Do you have tips for having the difficult conversations about immigration with people on the opposite side of the political aisle? Should we show the video? You wanna show the video? Here we go. Yes, we do. Well, it came from a can. Yeah. Excuse me, if I can say something, 
I couldn't see my family this year. Maggie and I have been friends for a long time, but today you all made me feel like family. Mikasa, Mikasa. And speaking of things to be thankful for, I'm thankful for my nephew's new job at LaBelle. <laughs> Don't screw it up, boy. <laughs> well, son, I think it's amazing that you found any work with all these illegals stealing our jobs. Um, I'm sorry, Uncle Cody. I think you meant to say undocumented Americans. If I meant that, Maggie, I would have said it. <laughs> Besides, what's the difference? <laughs> <laughs> Eyes up here. The correct term is undocumented, my little dum-dum. Why doesn't everyone say it with me? Undocumented. Good. Hey, can I talk to you for a second? Yeah, sure. What's up? What was that? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry about that. He was in the war. No, no, no. I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about you. What? Like right now, you're looking like the bad guy. Well, we have. Three I know he's ignorant, and I know it makes Apple you mad, but American. you can control this conversation, okay? Oh my god, you're right. I become the worst versions of myself when I'm around them. That's some baklava from the ethnic place. I don't get it, but let's just talk to them, okay? Okay, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> Welcome back, girls. Not going to address that right now. Um, all I'm trying to say is a person cannot be illegal. <laughs> I agree. Yes, thank you. Dad, <laughs> he gets it. <laughs> you know what pisses me off? It's how they get away without paying any taxes. You are so uninformed. I mean, do you read? I hate to say this, and this is like beneath my normal level of discourse, but you are an idiot. <laughs> Maggie, I don't know where I got these. This is empty. It's been empty the whole time. We should just build a wall. <laughs> yes. Mom. What? Mad dog, mad shit. You've been like a mother to me, mama. But from this day forward, you are my enemy. Run! I'm happy to let people in. High quality immigrants from places like Norway or Sweden. I'm sorry, Uncle Cody. The results are in. You've tested positive for racism. He's not a racist. In fact, all of you have tested positive for racism. It's somewhat of an epidemic. Mom, for you, it's the way you greet people in Mexican restaurants. I just say, hola, friendos. So preventable. It's very sad. And Cousin Jake, it's the way you do karaoke. I didn't put the N-word in the lyrics. Drake did. Yeah, but you don't have to say it. And Dad, it's what you call your Korean co-worker. Oh, the dragon lady? She's the meanest person in the world. And... She's Asian. Exactly. And Maria, I'm so sorry, but I'm seeing that you start all your Facebook posts to my white friends. Reverse racism isn't a real thing. Yes, but it's off-putting, which can be just as fatal. I'm so sorry, but you are all racists, and you're all going to die. Okay, just take it down a notch. Um, hello, do you know what it was like for me growing up with um two parents that are Hitler in this house? 
A family announcement. Maria is undocumented and she's gay. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. Wait, wait, Maria, you're an immigrant? Yes. But I mean, you don't look Mexican. I'm not. I'm Filipina. Oh, I, I love that Duterte. I mean, he's so strong and powerful. such a great leader. I'm not sure who that is. Oh, Maggie, you can't leave this up to your non-white friends to educate your family. I don't know what to do. Just have a conversation with them. Talk to them, okay? Sometimes they just don't realize that what they're saying is wrong. Look, you're coming from a place of empathy and love for immigrants like me. Even if your family makes you mad, you have to do the same for them. Yeah, you're right. Hey, can I chime in? Just working off that? Sure, Jake, why don't you go ahead? Maria, are you an anchor baby? <coughs> I... No, oh, undocumented. Okay, so now you're going to try and have anchor baby. She's coming here to have anchor baby so that she then can stay here. Wow. Okay, you know what? I'm over all of you. Maggie, you're right. Go ahead. Oh, Dad! Run, son! Run! Get away from him! Okay, well, <laughs> that was wild. <laughs> that was wild. Uh, any additional comments or context you want to share? Yeah, I mean, um, raise your hand if you love holidays with all of your family everywhere. You don't have to lie. It's okay. Some people have amazing families. Um, I, I think, look, for, for those of us who have... Uh, various forms of privilege, um, I, I do want to underscore that it's critically important in moments like these for us not to expect marginalized and oppressed people to bear the entire burden of fighting their way out of marginalization and oppression. We have a role. And those of us who have privilege, if we created these systems that are doing the oppressing, it's up to us to upend and deconstruct those systems. And so if folks like Jesus can get up in front of all of us and share that they're undocumented publicly and openly and to, all, to all these folk in an era where that could, months from now, if DACA goes away, mean deportation. Goodness sake, if we can't have a conversation with other folk of privilege about how we define American and about what kind of country we want to build. And so um, I know that it's really polarizing to have these difficult conversations right now. We've even stopped often using in our work the word immigrant because we've discovered that when you even say the word immigrant now, folks tune out psychologically and, and go to their polls. 
but um, out of love in communities of faith, in families, and then through things like sports and comedy, uh, we can begin to stretch one another and meet each other where we are and inch towards uh, different perception about particularly new Americans. Um, I am really afraid, Kevin, about where we're at as a country and our ability to allow space for redemption. Um, I have family members who are Trump voters. I have an uncle who uh, years ago we were staying there and I was in the guest bedroom and I uh, looked up after sleeping in the guest bed and above the bed was a, a giant picture of a, a guy in a white robe. And I went to my aunt who was cooking breakfast and I said, uh, what is that about? She said, oh, don't worry, that's, that's just your, your uncle's daddy. And I said, oh, that makes me a lot more worried. That's my uncle. As hateful as, as, as what he's presenting is, and, and as destructing as, as how he votes and acts is to the people that I love, if I fail to at least believe in some sense of redemption for him, and that's going to look different for every person. I believe also in reconciliation, and you, you have to have a full sort of uh, account of, of harm that you've done to other people. But if I stop believing in redemption as possible for him and stop trying to have a conversation, I just don't know honestly where that ends. I, if, if their side says, well, we can't have America if your side is here, and we say, well, we can't have a real America if your side isn't here, I just hate to sort of discover where that ends. And so I, I just have to believe that redemption is still possible. If you've got to use comedy, use comedy. Question? Yes, there are. There's some in the military. We have deported veterans. Some folk that I served with, we've deported. There's a veterans house in Mexico that does incredible work because a lot of the vets don't have anywhere to go uh, when they get deported. But, but um, that is true. I, I have a friend... Um, uh, Jesus, who um, it's a different Jesus, uh, who's a, a lawyer right now, DACA recipient in the army, and uh, yes, absolutely. What are the alternate terms that you use instead of immigrant? Uh, new American, I use a lot. Um, uh, yeah, other identities. Sometimes, sometimes people like to use. What, what their status is, but statuses shift, as you know. I mean, and so I, I prefer New American, uh, anything with the word American in it. Uh, one of the things that we wanted to cover and go over were maybe the top three or four rhetorical objections that are within the popular culture. We had a couple questions come in, and please uh, forgive me, I'll try to get to all the questions that you guys submitted. Um, in addition to having difficult conversations. But um, there was also some questions about clarifying what really is the current policies. And, you know, the, the big question is pathways to citizenship. One of those questions um, that is popularly stated as well is why don't people just, quote-unquote, get in line? Um, 
And so I think let, maybe we'll start with that. And one of the reasons why we wanted to do this is um, very much in line with the idea that we're hoping that by your participation in this event today that you feel better equipped um, based upon the video, emotionally equipped, um, but then also you have some information or understanding um, for how to have those difficult conversations. And maybe it's just helpful for you as well. Maybe some of you are still wrestling with your personal philosophy on what you actually think should be appropriate policies or uh, the outplay of your faith. So we wanted to go through some of those objections and then to hear Ryan uh, share. So let's, let's just start with that one. I'm all for legal immigration. Why don't immigrants or undocumented Americans just get in line for the process? That's one of the things. Yeah. I mean, this is a question that we get all the time. Um, And uh, I think uh, it's a relatively simple question that many folk think would require a simple answer if our immigration system were simple. It's among the most complex. I went to law school but then left for divinity school, thank God. Um, But when I started... Pun intended. (laughs) Yes. When I started uh, first reading into the... um, various laws that we have on the books around immigration, I was stunned at just how complex it was. And so we worked at Define American with uh, a team of over a dozen lawyers to put together uh, a a graphic that tried to get to this complexity because it was a question that we got so much. I don't know, uh, Kevin, if you have the ability to put that graphic uh, up. The game of, of getting legal is what we called it. And you can see that for folk who don't have status, uh, this is quite a game. And almost everything on this map, for those of you who can't read it because the lettering is too small, uh, ends in a no and you're screwed. Sorry, there's no path for citizenship for you. Um, Some potential paths that have been carved out uh, previously are not available under this administration. So... You asked uh, earlier whether there are people who have DACA that are serving currently in our military. Yes, that's true. There used to be an opportunity through what's called the, the, the MAVNI program that allowed DACA recipients with special sil- skills to enlist in the military that then eventually after their term of service could uh, make them eligible for legal status, which they then could wait a number of years and apply for citizenship that program has been ended. So there's no longer a program um, that is available to people. Um, it used to be up until a year and a half ago, legal, uh, still is legal technically, for people to come to this country and apply for asylum. That is legal to apply for, a process for asylum. Now with the stay in Mexico policy that's implemented under this administration, our government is paying the Mexican government, uh, not very much money uh, compared to the challenge, to keep everyone in Mexico so that they have no legal ability, they have no physical ability to actually apply for asylum. Um, and so it's, it's very difficult. I mean, the simplest answer to the why don't you just get legal is there is no line, there is no possibility for the majority of folks to get legal. If... Uh, our founder, Jose Antonio Vargas, were to leave 
this country tomorrow uh, and go back to the Philippines, which is a country that has a president who is very anti-LGBT and uh, has imprisoned journalists. He's an LGBT journalist. Uh, could be dangerous. Um, but even if he did... Uh, he would face uh, automatically, as would everybody, a 10-year bar from re-entering the country. So after that 10-year period in the Philippines, it's 18 years before you can apply. That's the, the length of the line, quote-unquote. You can reapply. The overwhelming majority of those applications are denied. And so then you wait another series of years. So by, by that time, most people, you know, you're, you're talking about decades potentially before you can even really apply uh, for legal status once you've been here without documentation. And that's what's facing particularly the 11 million undocumented folks that are here, half of whom uh, came here legally uh, and overstayed a visa. So the idea that our border is porous, which is crap, uh, and that undocumented folks committed an Ill illegal act it's all just frankly factually untrue. Half of folk overstayed. Last year, the biggest increase in undocumented population was actually from Canada. Over the last decade, the biggest increase in population, in undocumented population, comes from Asia. And so um, there's a lot of rhetoric uh, that doesn't quite meet the reality that people are unfortunately facing. One person writes, which is, I think, very much uh, in line with another question that we had. As a person who founded a nonprofit to support undocumented families and have been walking in solidarity, I struggle to envision what to advocate regarding reform. What paths of reform do you envision that can be sustainable? This is like an economic question. If we open borders with open arms, uh, we, you already addressed that, um, how can we absorb the costs of education, health care that come with it? What criteria do you envision for allowing immigration of the poor at a pace that we could support? Because one of the one of the objections uh, is, isn't immigration a drain on our society financially, economically, etc.? Uh, it's hard not to find a racial element in this because of our perception of people's possibility. Uh, Maria, who I spoke about earlier, showed up at the border with nothing but what she was carrying and her four-year-old son with uh, tied-up plastic bags as shoelaces. But prior to the drought in her country, she was a graduate-level educated woman that had done accounting in a fairly well-off family. We have undocumented doctors and lawyers in this country. Um, we have children of refugees and asylum seekers that have become the... Um, creators of some of the biggest companies in the United States of uh, America. The majority of Fortune 500 companies in the United States are founded by immigrants. You're twice as likely to start a business in the United States if you're an immigrant. You're four times as likely if you're undocumented. Why? You can't legally be employed. So we have millions of entrepreneurs starting businesses so that they can feed their families. That's the kind of spirit I think that we need in a renewal of America where we've seen um, wages fairly stagnant and the wealth gap between the super wealthy and the poor uh, grow. So I, I do challenge the premise 
on its face that um, new Americans are somehow uh, more prone to need support, financial support, because the numbers don't bear it out. The majority of uh, research, DACA is a great example. These uh, originally 800,000 young people um, have higher rates of college graduation than any other single demographic in the entire country. And all that happened because we allowed them to legally go to school. So the question for me wouldn't be, well, is there some drain on the economy um, in the first few years? But over time, do we believe still in the United States of America in the American dream? And the ability for someone to achieve that dream and in the ability for people to have possibility. I mean, look, I, I am a person of faith. And I have to read into possibility of people when I read stories uh, of David and Goliath. Everyone looked at David as somebody who was going to get his butt kicked and then ruin the entire country's chances. But David had some things in his sling and had some possibility. And that's the spirit that I, I really am afraid that we lose if we don't have newcomers who, for better or worse, as true or untrue as it is, buy into the American dream that we, for centuries, have spread across the world and said, if you come here, you got a shot, only in America. And now, in 2019, we act shocked when those people who we've said across the world come here for the American dream, show up on our doorstep, ring our doorbell. You can't come in, I'm sorry. And at the same time, in the same border, have a sign on one side in Juarez that says, help want it, and a sign on our side of the border that says, stay out, all because we're addicted to cheap labor. And so my question additionally would be, not are these folks a drain on society, but can we create an economy that hasn't just moved from the enslavement of people to the indentured servanthood of people to requiring an entire workforce that pays people low wages so that we can have cheap food when we go to Whole Paycheck. And I, well, by Whole Paycheck, I mean Whole Foods. I think that's what we have to reckon with. Um, a quarter of all restaurant workers in the entire country are undocumented in cities that's over half. Are we willing to have an economy that works for all people? Uh, you know, and so, I, yes, there is some data, to be truthful, that in some communities, when there is a dramatic influx of newcomers, there is some competitiveness in the working class job market. Over time, more people has grown economies significantly. You can see that in communities like Dayton, Ohio, that was hemorrhaging jobs and people because uh, manufacturing left. And they made a bold move, and that was to recruit immigrants. And now, two decades later, Dayton, Ohio, is one of the most uh, growing communities. They lost their tax base because so many people were leaving. Um, and they said, well, let's welcome immigrants. They have rejuvenated communities. Um, and so, you know, I think it's about what the possibility is we view in people, not 
whether we view them as some sort of, uh, you know, drain on an economy that doesn't have an abundance. Okay, so you said you came here for truth-telling. I want to push into the uncomfortable conversation of race and racism at the heart of many of this. One of the objections that we wrote down is, I just don't feel like this is my country anymore. Immigrants are changing our country, our value. They're bringing their religion and customs, and it's just not America anymore, right? This kind of rhetoric. And I, I had asked you, and I was wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing and expounding upon to call somebody or to call out racism seems to be one of the most ineffective ways of actually calling out racism. And so given that race and racism and racial ideas are so much at the foundation of this, what is the appropriate strategy, perspective in being a truth teller about that reality um, without greater polarization. Like you talked about redemptive movements of people. So can you walk us through that? Because it feels to me as if we simply talk about um, policies and compassion without talking about the root causes, then we're doing a disservice to what is actually driving the rhetoric and the ideas and the emotions, etc. But to go there seems to only polarize and it, cause people to revolt and so walk us through that yeah i don't (laughs) to me it's not a a question of whether we go there or not it's a question of how um i think fundamentally as a country we have failed to disentangle ourselves from our original sins one of one of those sins had an element of adopting an american identity that was tied to whiteness And what a lot of folks, I think, in a conversation about dismantling systems of racism start to recognize eventually is that in order to adopt a sense of privilege as white folk, we had to give up something along the way. That's the untold story that we don't often tell, that we are not truly free to be who we are until we've undone those systems. When you come to the United States of America, you may come as a German, you know, burger or an Irish shoemaker, but eventually you become white. I was in Georgia with our founder years ago and a young man who talked a lot like me, came up, and he looked at Jose before our uh, event. Jose's Filipino. Um, It's not Mexican. It's a Spanish colonialism thing. Uh, And he said, where are you from? And Jose said, I'm from uh, Mountain View, California. Where are you from? The kid said, uh, I'm from here. I'm not, what do you mean? And the kid goes, no, but where are you from from? Jose said, yeah, from California, but where are you from? Jose said, uh, well, I think what you mean is that I am from the Philippines, but I grew up in California. Where are you from? And he said, 
Oh, I'm, I mean, I, I'm white. I'm an American. And Jose said, well, white is not a country. But that's the reason that now every classroom that I go into when I teach, I ask everybody to introduce themselves and I ask them where they're from. And growing up as a white person in this country, you're never asked, where are you from from? It means something different when you're asked the question. And I always ask the kids, where are you from from? Do you know? And what's sad about that is the disdain that's on their faces when they don't know. They haven't even had to reckon with the fact that they come from somewhere. And what did we lose when we did that? I, I think that's a tragedy with our adoption of privilege and whiteness that we've got to unpack. Um, and I think there are repercussions for that. When I, um, Muhammad Ali, the most famous person from my town, Louisville, died a couple years ago. And I didn't know what to do the, the night that he died. Uh, it was early mornings. So we get the text. And I go over to, they were about to open up his childhood home as a museum. So I just go to his home early morning. And his brother Rachman is there. And I ended up spending the day with Rock on the front porch of his childhood home. And about halfway through the day, Rock turns to me. He said, hey, Ryan, you know, uh, we're family. And I said, Rock, that means a lot. I appreciate that. He said, no, 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 you know we're kin. We're related. And I said, Rock, I don't know if you can tell. I'm a white guy. And he said, no, 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 don't you have some Irish in you? And I said, yeah, far back, some Irish. And he said, well, you know, Ryan, one day I was sitting on the front porch with Muhammad, and um, we asked granddaddy, we said, granddaddy, are you white? And he kind of leaned back in his rocking chair and he said, no, sons, I, I guess I'm not white. He was Irish. It was a great book, How the Irish Became White. And at that time, he wasn't treated as if he was white. And we continued to create these systems because of our inability to view American as the most diverse, inclusive country in the world with its marriage to whiteness. And I just think... Um, you know, I always thought the Ali's supported immigration because they were Muslim. I didn't realize that they supported immigration because they come from a lineage of Irish immigrants who were discriminated against in Louisville, Kentucky, who years ago, the last time that a political party called the Know Nothing Party, you can, you can Wikipedia it, uh, went all in on xenophobia and, and came into power. In Louisville, Kentucky, we had a thing called Bloody Monday, and on election day, dozens of Irish and German immigrants of the lineage of the Ali's were murdered on election day for trying to go and vote. That's the last time that a political party went all in on xenophobia in America. Now, thankfully, there's another election coming up next year. The Know Nothing Party, we know nothing about because they were so soundly defeated they dissolved within two election cycles. But I think we have to unpack it. I think we have to uh, talk about race. We did a study before we did a film called White People um, on MTV. 
we MTV commissioned a study, and they discovered in that study that over 90% of all white people have zero friends of color. Um, they also discovered that among the millennial population, the majority of white young millennials believe that they face more discrimination than people of color. And that gave us justification to go around and say, we got to do this film. But we went around D.C., New York, to try to raise, excuse me, support for it. And all our partners within the immigrant freedom movement said, please don't do this. Please don't do a film about race. It's the third rail. We're about to pass comprehensive immigration reform. You're going to mess it all up. And we said, we got to talk about race. Everywhere we go, eventually, if you talk about immigration enough, you're going to, you got to talk about race. And so we did. And um, we discovered all kinds of things. 3.3 million people watched it within the first week. And now it's a common practice, I think, to talk about migration practices and race. But I, I think we have to. I mean, I think for me, it's questioning first. So with, with my um, brothers and sisters who, uh, for them, hearing that they may be racist or have some racist tendencies is the most evil thing you could ever say about them. Um, it's asking questions. What does an American look like? Let's talk about that. Do you have to have white European heritage to be an American? If you think so, why? Uh, name folk that they come into con you know, contact with. Was that person less American than you? I mean, there's a starting point for every person. We just have to be willing to meet them where they are and be willing to stretch to in that conversation. Um, but I think we have to talk about it. I think we have to talk about it because otherwise our own freedom uh, is, is still locked up. I, I mean, can you give us two, maybe three bullet points? Do this, don't do this. I'm sensing like one of the emotional postures is the bravery and the courage to actually broach the subject. Um, I'm sensing another one, which is have patience with people, yeah. which I think can, is really difficult for those of us who want to have redemptive conversations with people who hold to such offensive ideas sometimes. It's yeah. like to have patience with people. Yeah, yeah. So is there any, like what, like, can you give us yeah. some handholds, maybe one yeah. or two? So uh, the first thing I'll say is don't expect people who are being dehumanized to be the bridge builder all the time. I mean, I want to reiterate that. If someone is starting from a place where they don't view you as a full human, it is not a requirement that that's a person that you engage. And I, and I say that to say, you know, I, I did this two days ago. I posted an article about the new report that 70,000 young people this year have been locked in cages, separated from their families. And we did a study in the Families Belong Together Coalition that 87% of all Americans are against putting those kids in cages. If you are a person that's in the 13% that believes it's okay to take a child for any reason, any reason, but let alone a child whose parents got them here seeking safety or opportunity, and you think it's okay to put that child in prison and tear them away from their family, I'm not sure you have the capacity to be in a fully humanized conversation yet. We got some more work to do. Now that poll also revealed for us that half of everyone who said it was wrong to put the kids in cages, when we asked them, 
what do you do with the parents? The majority said, throw them in jail and throw away the key. Now, I would suggest there's some conversation opening there. What makes that parent's decision to try to provide a better life for their child different than your decision or your parent's decision to provide a better life for you? Let's talk about that. What's in that? Unpack that for a while, right? So that's one. Number two, uh, use the power of story. Uh, I tell folks all the time, that are nervous about getting into conversations about immigration because they don't know all the ins and outs. First of all, immigration attorneys don't know all the ins and outs. So don't worry about that. Secondly, you can debate on policy and issues. No one can debate with your story. You are an expert in your own story and your own experience. You came to the conclusions that you now have somehow. So use the power of story. Keep it embedded in story. Keep it embedded in questions. Meet people where they are. And then try to find two things, common ground on anything. It may be the smallest thing, but at least find common ground on that thing at the human fundamental level. And then what we discovered in the LGBTQ uh, rights movement when churches were trying to wrestle with this subject, and they still are, is that having common aspirations can help. So let's get out of the muck and the messiness and the polarization and the world is going to end if we have open borders and all this stuff. What do we aspire to together? What kind of country would you like to have? The wall and building it, that's not a type of country. I mean, it is. But I don't think people aspire to live in walled up communities. Really. I mean, that's a temporary, like, let's do that thing now because we know it can be torn down kind of thing like it was in Germany. But what do we aspire to? What kind of country do we want to be? And I think we can find commonality around that. That's really good. Um, Ryan, we're coming to the end of our time. We, you have a, um, a beautiful group of people here from Congregation Eitz Chaim, Spark Church, some from the public. Um, what, what would be your last clarion encouraging word directive to us regarding all of this, um, give you the last, um, you're something else moment. <laughs> um, and then I'll ask Rabbi Chaim to close us in a benediction. Yeah. Uh, thank you. And thank you for having me. It is really incredible to be in a community like yours. Um, I think this is a special place. And when I, I don't use the word beloved community lightly, and I think that's what you're trying to build here. And I've experienced that all in one evening. And I wish I could bottle this up and take it across the country. And I am hopeful that you'll continue to grow, not just in number, but in community with each other. Um, I was with my friend Desmond Mead uh, last week. Uh, Desmond just last year got ran the campaign to, uh, to get 1.7 million uh, voter rights restored for people who had committed a, a crime in Florida. And Desmond, um, when asked this question, uh, I talked about allyship and how um, what we don't need is just more allies and what that meant. Uh, and I described it in one way, he described it another. I said, uh, if allyship, which is what people often refer to me as when I go into these spaces, 
means shutting up, sitting down, and sitting on the sidelines and just watching. I'm out. Some of my people who I will one day join in the dirt created this oppression. And if I'm going to sit back and watch as it happens and sit, sit back and watch a movement happen in my lifetime and not be a part of it, I'm out. So as my friend and our founder, Jose, said the other day, we don't need allies. We need co-conspirators. Co-conspirators in creating a more inclusive America, more beloved communities, more communities of resistance. In response to that, my friend Desmond said, Ryan, uh, it's like a ham and uh, egg omelet. And that's what we need. I said, what do, you, what do you mean? And he said, well, every one of us has different roles. And we've got to figure out which role is ours. And when you made an omelet, the cow made some contributions. The chicken made some contributions. The cheese, the egg. But the pig went all in. <laughs> and he said, we need people willing to go all in. And as thousands of folks are at our border, as billions of dollars are about to be spent, on dehumanizing hate-filled rhetoric to make us believe that some folk among us are less than human, which would then justify them being put in camps, or worse, I fear. Some of us have to be willing to go all in. All of us have to make a contribution. And that would be, I can't tell you what contribution you need to make, but if we can't make it now, then God help us. So like I did uh, last Sunday, I want to invite us all to stand. And I want to invite us to all come, come closer. And if you feel comfortable to put your hand on the shoulder of the person next to you, um, please feel free to do that. If you don't feel comfortable, that's fine too. Whether you know the person or not. And if you're in the back, come on, come on forward, join, join a line. Or join, join with each other. It wouldn't be right for a rabbi to, to use this, maybe the same metaphor of, of the pig going all in. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, I can say, but I can say that when we walked in tonight, when we passed through those double doors, on the side of those double doors was a mezuzah, which is a sign of protection, a sign to say that we're walking into a sacred space, a sign to say that this is a shared sacred space, a sign to say that when you walk in these doors, this should be a sanctuary. This should be a safe place where we can work together and we can further our values through our actions. You talked about, at the beginning, changing our narrative. Tonight, we reflect on how we are the narrative.
together. Not us and them, but we are the narrative. You talked about how climate change is impacting immigration. Tonight, I want to invite us to create a climate change in our communities, in our families, with our loved ones. We have such an opportunity coming up with Thanksgiving and following Thanksgiving, our holidays, Hanukkah, Christmas, New Year's, times that we gather together around people we love, people we tolerate. It's an opportunity to create a climate change. When we walked in the door tonight, we all got our work visa and we've got a lot of work to do. But together, we have a great opportunity as two communities of faith devoted to change, to the dignity of the other, to freedom and to justice. We began by singing, let this little light shine. And as our days get shorter and the darkness sometimes feels like it's increasing all around us, let us all be that shining light as we go forth into our season of light where we bring in the light, each one of us, each one of us to illuminate our way. Thank you for bringing your light tonight. It'll shine forth even brighter. Thanks to you. Thanks to us. Thanks to all of us. As together we say, amen.